Welcome to the founders of Web3 series by Outlier Ventures and me, your host, Jamie Burke. Together, we're going to meet the entrepreneurs, their backers, and the leading policymakers that are shaping Web3. Together, we're going to try to define what is Web3, explore its nuances, and understand the mission and purpose that drive its founders. If you enjoy what you hear, please do subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission that is Web3. Today, I'm happy to welcome Ryan Selkis, founder of Masari, um, which is providing research tools for crypto enterprise and professionals. Um, Ryan, you describe yourself as being in crypto since it was Bitcoin 2.0, which is, of course, a reference to circa 2014 when the wider altcoin narrative began, as in alternatives to Bitcoin. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you've been at the heart of the ecosystem before it could begin to be considered as an industry, really, both as an entrepreneur, investor, and I guess journalist, analyst, I mean, from the, from the media perspective. You've been an entrepreneur in residence at Consensus with Joe Lubin, a founding team member at the industry's most prolific investor, DCG, Digital Currency Group, um, and the largest trade media um, in the space, Coindesk, and of course, its conference, Consensus. Um, more recently, you are the founder of Masari. I believe it's just over two and a half years now, where you've been working to bring professional-grade transparency and research to the space, uh, an industry that's played with capacity. And that's really delivered through, I guess, two kind of product lines. One is the transparency register which is looking for kind of disclosures, both from token projects, uh, but increasingly exchanges. Uh, and then you have your kind of pro product line, which caters to professionals in terms of investors, BD and compliance who want this kind of higher fidelity data and analytics. The reason why I want you on the show is both as a founder, I kind of regard you as the master of the bootstrap. You know, you've done it a couple of times now where you've built community in this space from, from zero. And of course, you have recently um, been acquired by OnChain FX. So congratulations with that. And then the second area is because of your deep knowledge of the space as a, as I guess, as a byproduct of what you do with Masari, but also just because you've seen everything through this full cycle that we've had since 2014. And the great work that you're doing really to kind of help professionalize the industry. So it's a great pleasure to have you on. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do it and excited to, to dive in. I mean, uh, you know, like, like you said, I've been around for a couple of different market cycles now, less about the years and more about the different, you know, epochs that uh, that Bitcoin and crypto in general has gone through. And uh, and obviously there's there's been uh, radical change in, in size and prevalence in quality of builder and the, just the general sentiment of the market. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting later to speak about whether you see that professionalization happening, not just within the capital markets, but also within the founders, of course, at DCG. You were investing at the very early stages, roughly around a time when I came into the industry, and there weren't many quality projects to, to invest in. So it's going to be interesting to dive into that a little bit later. So uh, to kind of summarize your, your background, to give some context, so you are an MIT MBA dropout. Uh, your excuse was because of Bitcoin, which I guess is as, as good as any. 
brief stint at JP Morgan in 2007. You worked at Summit Partners. I think your first startup was Good Benefits, which was looking to administer um, flexible workplace giving programs in 2011 to 14. You then began to advise a number of venture capitalists on performing due diligence in, in the Bitcoin industry and then created TBI Consulting around 2013. That led to TBI Daily, which was Bitcoin's industry-leading daily newsletter, had over 3,000 subscribers. And I guess that led you to be headhunted uh, by DCG, where you were Director of Growth, I believe initially Director of Investments. So you were the first hire at DCG, and you co-led a lot of the seed investing activity happening there, and of course, assisted in some of the funding rounds, as well as recruiting the and leading the acquisition and integration of the first subsidiary, CoinDesk, which you then went on to become managing director of in 2016. Somewhere in the middle of all of that, you were also an EIR entrepreneur in residence at Consensus. I couldn't quite place exactly where or when, should I say. So this was in uh, New York at the end of 2017. So it was a wild time to be part of Consensus. Right. And then just before you founded Masari in 2018, of course, where you are CEO in the present day. So I guess that's about as crypto a CV as you could get, or you know, I would say Web3. And whether it's investing at DCG or covering the industry through its cycles, as you said, at, at Coindesk, as well as giving the industry its first real platform with consensus, the consensus event, I guess the common theme across all of that um, that connects quite neatly into Masari is, is that you're very dedicated to driving forward the industry, actually putting in place a lot of the foundational pieces for it to become an industry, be, be considered an industry now at Masari, you're, you're trying to drive greater transparency in the space. What is it that attracts you to this space? What, why are you so dedicated to kind of furthering this industry? Well, you know, I, I first learned about Bitcoin back in 2011, right after I'd wrapped up uh, my first stint in venture capital. And at that point, I, I knew that I probably wanted to build something and be on the other side of the table versus investing full time. And, you know, at the time, it was right around the, the shutdown of U.S. government and the debt sequester and, and S&P downgraded U.S. debt. And I learned about Bitcoin just as a, a speculative hedge. And at the time, there was a few ways to play the trade if you're bearish on the dollar and, and the U.S. debt situation. You could short the Treasury ETF, you could buy gold, uh, or you could buy Bitcoin. And I think I did the only thing that that you shouldn't have done out of that, <laughs> that trio of, 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 of options. I ignored Bitcoin, I bought gold, and I shorted the US Treasury ETF. And then, you know, of course, counterintuitively, the Treasury ETF rallied on the back of the S&P downgrade because it was a flight to safety and, uh, and a lot of fear and panic in the market and, and ultimately the, the beginning of the, some of the sovereign debt issues that were happening in Europe. But I didn't really do anything with Bitcoin uh, other than loosely follow it because I'm not an engineer uh, until 2013. When you know Fred Wilson invested in Coinbase and the Winklevoss twins uh, launched their you know ETF application, Grayscale launched this trust, and then uh, the Fed shut down Silk Road. So it became obvious that this was not going to be just a fringe technology, or, or, or at the very least, some other very smart investors um, had, had de-risk entry and, and the career risk element of getting into the space. 
And I kind of jumped in with Pulfi right around the time of, of that first big spike. And, and that coincided with Andreessen Horowitz's Series B for Coinbase. So, you know, ever since then, you know, my interest has always kind of been there in this long-term wariness about the U.S. debt situation and, and just, you know, kind of our standing as a country when our run as the sole superpower and reserve currency comes to an end. I've always, you know, thought about what comes next. And over time, it's become about more than just money. You know, I think the emergence of Ethereum and, and DeFi has proven that not only could you have a new form of money, you could have a new entirely programmatic uh, decentralized financial system. The rise and, and success of Ethereum and crypto protocol tokens has really paved the way for new sensor-resistant you know, Web3 protocols, all of which are insanely early. Most of them are going to fail, but, but ultimately kind of offer a glimpse as to what we can expect going forward as a you know, decentralized response to an otherwise ever-growing you know, nationalistic and, and, and more authoritarian set of world governments and actors that are gradually accumulating power, even as you know, things get more tenuous with the coronavirus and, and just the, the general economic and, and geopolitical situation. So my interest day one was, you know, can this be a way to make money and kind of protect my own portfolio? And obviously it, along with the rest of the industry, has, has evolved. And so, you know, you describe the work that you're doing now with Masari as the S&P of, of crypto, but you also say that uh, the S&P of crypto won't look like the incumbents. And you also talk about the importance of an open source ethos and a kind of a rethink of the entire reference data stack. Could, could you unpack that a little bit? Why do you why do you think what do you think the S and P of crypto will look like? Presumably, that's what you're designing. You, you spend a lot of time thinking about it. And how do you realize the open source ethos, and why is that important? For starters, there's there's very few top down regulatory structures that you can rely upon. Right, everything is bottoms up within crypto. So one of the primary challenges is how do you think about standardizing data sets? You don't have an Edgar for financial reporting. You don't have anything like generally accepted accounting principles. You, it's very hard to get accurate, clean data, even out of the major exchanges. So in light of all that, the data that you're putting into these systems, any, any data system within you know, crypto, it's going to have to go through a kind of qualitative filter and, and you're going to have to develop global community-driven best practices versus top-down kind of regulatory mandated best practices on, on how we think about reporting, comparing apples to apples for, for all these different assets. So, you know, one of the key things that we started with was almost like a decentralized Edgar data library. These things aren't securities. Some of them might be, but most of them are, are not per se securities, but they still have teams and communities that are actively building them out. There are governance decisions that are made on a week-to-week -week basis. There are updates to the roadmap even if that's a completely decentralized process, like something like the, the Bitcoin improvement protocol or EIP process. And you also want to know how the tokens are distributed over time. Bitcoin is all, it's entirely programmatic, but many of the other assets that have been issued sub subsequently, there's some kind of reserve treasury from either a foundation or founders or early investors. And you have to be able to parse out who is selling when to better understand the migration from fully private to, at least in theory, fully decentralized. By definition, you're not going to be able to get a lot of that data as one company. 
or you're not going to be able to uh, kind of engineer it as one company. But we can help set some of the standards. We can help curate all these different data feeds and ultimately take a mosaic approach to solve the information quality problem that otherwise plagues the industry. So I think, you know, you're basically combining S&P with Wikipedia or, or GitHub if you really want to drive towards accuracy and better professional solutions for the major players that are inevitably uh, going to want to uh, enter this market and not really have a good starting point otherwise. Yeah, and I guess this is why community is so important to you and the community that you built up around you, the following you built up around you, but also the kind of very collaborative nature of how you engage with kind of cooperation, for want of a better word, in the space. Uh, and I, as I said at the beginning in the intro, you, you're kind of a, a master of bootstrapping community, I believe, with unqualified opinions, which you kind of refer to as, as a first product. It was initially really a, a newsletter um, that you were leveraging for content marketing, but is now being increasingly evolved into a podcast, AMA with the team. And I know you're spotlighting a lot of analysts out there. So can you talk to me about the the importance of community generally and in Web3 and how you've done so well in, in scaling them? I'm not sure how well we've done in particular. I, I think it's a you know, kind of testament to the broader team. And it, you know, to your point, it really just speaks more to the practical mission that we have as a company to, to to actually ingest data from as many third-party sources and, and and try to call balls and strikes from as many credible people as possible. So it's it's much less about I think active community investments per se, and, and more just like part of our corporate DNA, like right out right out of the gates. This was always part of our mission. It was always part of our kind of go-to-market strategy, and part of the advantage that we had was me being early in the industry and having a lot of great relationships with folks from, you know, the the DCG portfolio, from, you know, my time at Coindesk, kind of across the board. And uh, and that's, you know, a, a tough to replicate network on day one for, you know, other information providers. So I think there's certainly been, you know, active design decisions, active decisions that we've made to ensure that we as a company are, you know, not trying to create a walled garden, but you know, it, I think it's tough for me to pinpoint, you know, any particular decisions that we've made that are replicable versus just you know, really kind of finely ingrained in, into the, the company DNA. And I guess, as you say, slugging it out over uh, over several years now with that kind of inc- incremental community growth. So, you know, the, the kind of mission that you bring to the market, this trying to improve transparency, trying to increase the quality of disclosure, how likely do you think it is that we can improve these standards of disclosure in the next few years? Well, you know, part of it is structural and, and I think only part of it is intentional. Uh, so you know, one, one of the issues that we have is not the teams are trying to defraud their communities or, or trying to pull a fast one. There's certainly some of that. I think that was more prevalent in 2017. But the, the real issue is just there's a, a sense of like who has standing to make certain disclosures on behalf of a protocol if it's decentralized and, 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 and a single company does not own it. I think there's a, a pretty healthy gray area between teams that did an ICO or that privately launched uh, a network, a test network, and then ultimately went you know, live with a decentralized mainnet and a protocol like Bitcoin, 
which is you know almost certainly the most decentralized crypto asset protocol that, that, that currently exists. And oftentimes there's two things working against you. One, there's this issue of, of standing and good faith, honest answer that there are certain quote unquote disclosures that any single team cannot make. They can speak on their own behalf, but not necessarily on, on the part of the entire protocol. And then the other issue is just US securities law, yeah. where a, a lot of teams have spoken with us and they actively want to participate in this initiative but they think, okay, even if we are a coordinator of this information versus the only single source of truth, well, that might make us look more like a reporting entity or you know a security, even though we're not. So you know our lawyers have advised against that, and I think that's just a, a legacy issue of you know, eighty years of financial regulation in the U.S. From day one, if, if not thought that there was a an outright unwillingness for you know, teams to, to work on this, but for you know, some of these structural reasons. And you know, to the extent that there were, are parties that are still in that you know, opacity rules the realm camp, they tend to be ones that have a, a pretty clear bullseye on their back from a regulatory perspective. Um, and they tend to be, you know, in the latter case, projects that have washed out or, or already shut down or become functionally defunct. And so do you think that that structural problem can be resolved, should be resolved. I mean, I've experienced the same thing with a number of projects that we've worked with directly or indirectly, where, as you say, they grow, go to great pains to try to separate the equity startup, if there is one, from a foundation. And I've sometimes find it quite perverse that, you know, you would hope that the actions of the SEC would be encouraging, you know, greater disclosure, greater transparency in the market, fairer markets, less manipulation, et cetera. But I mean, how, how can this be resolved? Because as you say, it, is, it, is it possible to reconcile a, a decade of securities law with, with this new environment, this new asset class? I don't think so, but I think that you can use common sense uh, approaches to at least following the spirit of, of existing securities law, right? You think about the SEC and, and most national regulators purview, they're trying to promote healthy capital formation, protect investors, and generally just meet out fraud um, and abuse. And I think the actors that are, are proactively trying to solve some of these information problems are doing a better job in many cases than the SEC themselves um, then the global regulators themselves in, in, in bringing, you know, good, healthy information to light. But it doesn't mean that you're going to see legislation or, or anything common sense come out top down anytime soon. Right. Uh, so I, I don't think we're holding our breath on that. And it's not just that the regulators won't figure it out, but that by the time they figure it out, the industry will have already changed. You know, by the time, you know, regulators were finally grappling with Bitcoin, Ethereum and the ICO boom took place, right? Now that the regulators are finally thinking about the ICO boom and how to wrap their <laughs> head around you know, decentralized fundraising, now DeFi is taking off and, and decentralized exchange is taking off. Once they figure out, if ever, how to wrap their arms around that, it will be something else. And so the regulations that people might be looking for are consistently going to be years outdated anyway. So, you know, I think our approach is, you know, can we, can we take a common sense stance here? And ultimately, when the regulators do need help, they're more likely than not to default to something that's been developed 
in concert with with the private markets and, and the global markets because you can't as a US regulator enforce at least anymore your will and 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 your your guidelines on uh, global communities that might not be domiciled or have any bearing whatsoever on on the US market. So I guess you you know you could consider what we're going through now as somewhat of a, a birthing pains and hopefully many of the problems around disclosure are kind of a, a legacy issue. But of course, as you say, with the emergence of DeFi, we have a whole new raft of, of, of things to consider. And I assume with Masari and this kind of bottom-up approach, the intention is that the, the industry can almost self, self-regulate self itself from a disclosures perspective. So uh, in terms of trying to establish fundamentals, one of the things that's always frustrated me is this the altcoin narrative in that everything else is an alternative to Bitcoin um, and somehow comparable with one another, even though at least the um, conceptually they're trying to optimize for, for different kinds of utility. What are some kind of universal measures, uh, fundamental measures of network health that can be um, used across protocols? I don't know if there's any one definitive metric, and it is really going to vary from protocol to protocol, or at least from sector to sector, right? So smart contract platforms, you might want to look at the number of applications that are developed, the number of contract calls, the general on-chain transactions that are happening, just to get a sense for you know what real developer activity looks like. And you know to kind of normalize and, and make sure that you're not just picking up spam, you probably want to look at the gas usage or you know, any type of fee market for what's actually happening on chain. For Bitcoin, it might just be the price itself because Bitcoin as a shelling point is, is a, a store of value. It's, it's got a strong holder base and it's more important as a digital gold than as a settlement mechanism. That, that's obviously extremely important too, but Bitcoin's you know, kind of portability and, and storability make it such that you'd probably want to look more at the distribution of the holder base and the length of time that some of these assets have been held to you know, better understand you know, who actually cares about Bitcoin and, and how the population of, of holders is evolving over time, whether it's growing, shrinking, or staying static. And then you know, for, for ERC-20 applications or you know, all other uh, type of assets, you can really go sector by sector if you're trying to think about the most important high signal metrics that would show some type of network growth. And it's not just about like GitHub uh, commit lines. You know, for for decentralized storage, it's going to be how much storage is actually secured using these digital tokens. For uh, exchange tokens, yeah, those are quasi securities, right? They're buy and burn models, and and you know they're they're used as on exchange currency to to reduce trading fees and, and kind of get access, you know, almost like a membership model to all sorts of other services. So. I think every asset is a little bit different. And, and the mistake that you know, people made for a long time was thinking that these were just one size fits all, where we really take a sector by sector approach to thinking, okay, what are, what are going to be the, the ultimate drivers of, of value for this particular asset? You mentioned earlier that uh, you believe the majority of the networks that are alive at the moment will fail in the long term, possibly you know, short to midterm. I guess you could also argue that some have already failed, that they're kind of zombies. But yet, you know, their tokens still exist. They're still traded. They're almost used as a store of value rather than any any kind of 
the, the intended form of utility. But the kind of the top 20 or so is, is relatively unchanged. So, you know, what is the likelihood that we are going to see new projects be able to break into the market and attack that top 20 with the disadvantage of, you know, not having been around for several years and, and presumably have accrued a, a degree of faith and confidence just because they're still here? I think that matters for currencies. I think it's less important for most other assets, right? Um, you look at at some of the other assets that are in the top 10, you know, like Binance, uh, BNB, they're an exchange, right? If Binance gets outperformed by another up and coming exchange or, you know, Binance, the platform runs into regulatory issues and, and there's some reduction in trading volumes or, or, you know, trading volume switch to another alternative. Well, then, you know, that asset's going to, probably drop out of the top 20 or be replaced by another similar, you know, exchange token for, you know, things like, you know, Bitcoin cash, Bitcoin SV, you know, these forks of Bitcoin, the longer they go with basically no on-chain transaction volume and, and being marginalized as just a lesser version of the real Bitcoin with no other, you know, real distinguishing or differentiating features, you know, those could ultimately turn over. And you could have something like, you know, called Z, like a Zcash or Monero or, or one of the other privacy coins take the place of Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin SV, Litecoin, which have no real developer activity, no real innovation going on. And you know, those will kind of gradually, not suddenly fall out of the top 20 and be just replaced by better options. You know, people are not going to stay stupid forever. And by the way, you know, the same applies to Ethereum, right? If better alternatives come along... Then Ethereum uh, or ETH2 runs into issues. Well, then you'll see Polkadot or Cosmos or, or any of these other layer one uh, protocols, you know, come to the fore if they can develop a strong, you know, religious community of, of developers and, and, you know, ecosystem stakeholders that, that will reinforce the, the security of the network. Now, Bitcoin and Ethereum are going to be very hard to displace, but you know, everything else, you know, including Bitcoin and Ethereum, I think, you know, we're, we're still so early here that I think if you if you zoom out a little bit, it's you know, very possible, if not likely, that many of these turn over. Having said that, in the medium term, I think if, you know, as Bitcoin and ETH go, so go the industry, because it would be so disruptive if Bitcoin lost its whole position as uh, kind of the, the most valuable crypto asset, right? Most people think about crypto. They don't think about crypto. They think about Bitcoin. And then it's only once you've purchased Bitcoin and actually spent some time you know, understanding it that, that you even really scratch the surface of, of, of all the other assets out there. You know, I, I still think we're, we're in the very early innings and the lack of fundamentals for and, and tangible price drivers that you can point to for some of these top protocol tokens just hints at how early we still are, right? Uh, you know, like who's actually building on, you know, who's actually using Litecoin? Who's actually building on EOS or Tezos or Tron or, you know, some of these you know, platforms that are valued at north of a billion dollars? It's, um, it's, it's still extremely, extremely small. And you, know, you can make the case that, that a lot of these things are valued and, and those valuations don't really have any real bearing on reality. But I, I think the only time that becomes obvious is in hindsight. And the only time it becomes obvious is when there are much clearer, superior alternatives that have emerged already. So presumably, even looking at it from the perspective of top 10, top 20, et cetera, 
is fairly redundant or should be fairly redundant. So because these are not not comparable assets once we move to genuine utility. So I guess the assumption then is that we move to something like indices with comparable protocols. Is that the natural next step? And, and how far away are we from that? People within the industry, at least, are already thinking about you know crypto assets in, in, in different baskets. You know, no one in the industry is looking at, at Bitcoin versus you know Ethereum as if they're totally apples to apples. No one's looking at at you know Binance token or or stablecoin apples to apples with you know a, a volatile you know crypto asset. So the professionals that we talk to and and the folks that are using Masari as a service, they're already trying to you know pierce the veil and, and kind of come up with their own assessments for. Not, not only what could the future value of, of a given token be, but what's the what's the current base reality, and what do you need to believe in terms of key metrics and and across sectors for some of these assets to you know not just be va- as valuable as they are today, but but ultimately maintain any value going forward. I mean, I guess one of the the barriers to financial products based around indices is is the problem of transparency. You know, getting an ETF for an indices uh, in in crypto at the moment is challenging pr- precisely because people think the, the assets are generally manipulated and they kind of point to uh, a number of different exchanges how far away are we from being able to convince regulators that this space is reputable enough that we can start to see these 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 products go mainstream well, I, th- I think the products are only going to go mainstream if the SEC actually approves one of them. But Grayscale and their investment trust has is, is already proven that it's a, a perfectly acceptable vehicle for, for most you know, hedge funds and, and, and most savvy investors that want to get access to the market. Um, so I, I, th- I think that's you know, something that will evolve naturally over time. So presumably, you know, the capital is going to follow an interest or a belief more generally that these protocols are out there delivering real impact. But if you look at most of the usage numbers, as you say, whether it's, you know, dApps, the, the numbers are, you know, fairly insignificant when compared to any other kind of web service or web incumbent. Where are you seeing the most adoption happen for kind of genuine utility rather than just speculative trading? We've seen real adoption in decentralized exchange with anything that has to do with programmable financial applications, right? Lending derivatives, instantaneous, you know, metered payments, uh, anything around the money use case. I think you know, it certainly has interesting experiments, but but nothing has hit mainstream levels yet. Maybe the closest thing that's getting close to its Netscape moment, I guess, would be stablecoins. And how they're being used for inter-exchange settlements and cross-border payments and, and the like. But I think for a lot of people, it, it's frustrating to just watch the the evolution of this industry and think that there hasn't been much real-world utility in terms of applications. But in some cases, that misses the point because the applications has the the, the primary application has been the creation of a new independent form of money and a programmable one at that. That you know, people can you know ultimately program smart contracts against and, and facilitate uh, all types of new uh, financial services. So the base is small, but from that small base, you know, we've obviously seen a ton of growth across the board. Whether you're talking about stable coins, 
whether you're talking about decentralized exchange volume, obviously asset issuance, even though it, you know, it's down from 2017, like that is a killer wrap, the ability to create new assets, new digital goods like NFTs. You know, there's been quite a bit of this. The question is, you know, what are going to be the accelerants and what ultimately is going to propel the market forward? So I think that there's probably no better tailwind and catalyst than you know what we're already seeing with the coronavirus and you know all of the virtualized the push to kind of all things virtual, whether you're talking about e-commerce or or virtual work or VR interactions. I think more and more of our lives, even more so than they are today, are going to be pushed online. And and once you are online, you're going to want uh, platform resistant, you know, sovereign resistant digital currency that, that can be yours and isn't necessarily subject to tax if you're just talking about the virtual realm and the computer. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that Corona will prove, or COVID will prove to be an accelerant to virtual goods as we see this kind of blending of, of work and play and gaming culture permeate through the kind of DAO, the um, decentralized autonomous organization communities increasingly more wealth will be digital and virtual and i can imagine there's already a, a generation out there that will, will only ever know um, that form of wealth and so naturally this as you say this kind of bottom-up new financial system that we've created is is going to see lots of different kinds of innovation happening so you did a, a thesis at 90, 96 actually thesis for crypto in 2019 and you were talking a lot about i mean of course there's 96 of them so you, you could pick any number of them but which of those did you see to come through i know you, you talked that the icos were dead you proposed that security tokens would, would become a thing how are you seeing some of these things evolve well yeah i mean i actually wrote a more recent version in december as well with 120 basically top tens across you know a variety of different sectors, right? So, you know, thoughts on the stablecoin boom, thoughts on Bitcoin and Ethereum and kind of Web3 and DeFi PCs. And, you know, a lot of this we've we've touched on. But, you know, I generally have been surprised at how slow and how, you know, one-dimensional Bitcoin has become in terms of upgrades, in terms of kind of extensibility of the platform. But I think that's okay because in, in this type of macro environment, you want something similar to you know, digital form of gold and, and the less moving pieces, the better, because I think that's healthy from a security standpoint. And then I've been not at all surprised by all the vulnerabilities and, and challenges in scaling DeFi applications. But at the same time, I've also been very impressed with the growth of the stablecoin and you know just DeFi infrastructure market. And I think that's important because I think in the early stages, you will see you know quite a bit of money lost in this experimentation phase, but that's okay. Uh, and, and ultimately, that's kind of a necessary evil for you know this particular industry. If we are going to end up having killer apps, you're going to need dozens of, of failed you know protocols and different you know, DeFi applications to be shipped and developed before you start to see more secure, stable, reliable applications emerge. And you know once those are out there, and we do have some critical mass. I think there's a compounding effect that that has on, you know, the the evolution of of you know all other derivative applications. So you know, maybe the biggest area that that I've been surprised about the pace of growth has been in the lending side, and it's less about micro loans or facilitating credit to people that that have not predominantly had access to credit. It's actually about 
the ability to take out fully collateralized loans against long-term holdings so that you don't have to you know liquidate and and, and ultimately take you know tax penalties whenever you know you're, you're trying to pare down gains I, I think that is a massively massively important driver of growth and value for you know a lot of early investors and and ultimately for you know any investors in the next super cycle when Bitcoin and ether have their next you know bull run you're going to see that pick up even more aggressively and provided that the collateral ratios are not completely out of whack which we could very well see then pretty much everybody that's taking out DeFi loans that are well collateralized you know they're they're probably going to come out net ahead because they were able to take out a dollar backed stablecoin sell that buy a house buy a car buy you know their their day-to-day goods with it and at the same time they're not paying taxes on that maybe you're paying interest but interest rates are, are so low right now, DeFi and otherwise, that it makes a, a heck of a lot more sense than paying a twenty or thirty percent tax on gains. So I'd say, you know, if I were to pick three things that to highlight from the previous report and, and kind of what's changed since then, I, those are probably be the the top ones. What better way to end the podcast than on that fairly uh, optimistic bullish note? So Ryan, thanks so much for your time. I know you're a very busy man. Um, good luck with the event in June and hopefully we'll have you on again soon. Excellent. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.